Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Henrik Berggren, den svenske forfatter og historiker, har skrevet en af de bedste politiske biografier, jeg nogensinde har læst. Det er hans bog om Olof Palme, som hedder Aristokraten, der blev socialist. Henrik Berggren fortæller gennem personen, politikeren, statsministeren og moroffret Olof Palme hele historien om, hvordan den moderne svenske velfærdsstat blev bygget op. Og noget af det helt centrale i Palmes velfærdsstat, det var, at Sverige var en alliancefri nation. Det var, at Sverige var en neutral nation i verden. Det var, at Sverige viste en vej, hvor man hverken behøvede slutte sig til Østblokken eller Vestblokken. Hvor man hverken skulle være Washingtons vassal eller Moskvas vassal. Man behøvede hverken være en del af NATO eller af Varsjava-pakten. Man kunne gå sin egen vej i verden. Og det at kunne gå sin egen vej i verden, det betød, at man viste også vejen for andre lande. Det var en moralsk position for Olof Palme, som blev en moralsk position for Sverige, at stå udenfor. At stå sammen med alle de små lande imod stormagterne. At vise, at det internationale system, det skal beskytte de små lande mod de store lande. Og det var en position, som blev enormt vigtig for Palme i 50'erne og 60'erne, hvor en masse lande blev fri fra koloniherredømme. Det var en måde at gøre en forskel i verden på. Der er også en masse hyggeleri i Sveriges neutralitet. I realiteten har de jo altid tilhørt Vesten, og kommunisterne var deres fjende under den kolde krig. De har også solgt våben. De har også lavet alle mulige beskidte handler. Men spørgsmålet er, om det annullerer neutralitetens heroisme, eller om det bare er det kompromis, der skal til, for at du kan være idealist andre steder. Henrik Berggren har givet langt den bedste forklaring på, hvad neutralitet og alliancefrihed har betydet for Sverige, som jeg nogensinde har læst. Han har påvist de meget beskidte og meget brutale handler, der var grundlaget for det, men han har også vist, hvor store forskelle de kunne udrette i verden. Så han har vist Sveriges realiteter og Sveriges idealer gennem deres helt særlige vej i verden, som var neutraliteten, alliancefriheden, den svenske exceptionalisme. Så da jeg hørte, at Sverige opgav deres neutralitet, opgav deres alliancefrihed for at blive en del af NATO, så tænkte jeg, at det bliver vi nødt til at lave en langsom samtale om, og det skal være med den svenske historiker og forfatter Henrik Berggren. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially good evening to you Henrik Berggren who's with us from Stockholm I believe. Yes, yes, I'm in Stockholm. Thank you very much. Det er lidt pinligt for os som skandinavister, at samtalen foregår på engelsk. Til gengæld var vi enige om, Henrik og jeg, at vores samtale ville være på et højere niveau, hvis vi ikke hele tiden skulle lade som om, vi var flydende skandinavister, der ikke rigtig vidste, hvad hinanden sagde. Så derfor får I her min samtale med Henrik Berggren om Sverige, neutraliteten, den svenske idealisme, den svenske kynisme og de svenske realiteter i det 21. århundrede på engelsk. Jeg håber, I kan leve med det. When I heard that Sweden would join NATO, there was no one I'd rather talk to than you. I feel personally, I've always admired the Swedish sovereignty and the way that Sweden has chosen its own path, having its own monetary policies, its own immigration policies for years, and of course, standing outside NATO. And I know there's a lot of hypocrisy and there are a lot of dirty compromises to do it, but I always admired the insistence to take your own decisions as a country. Uh, so for me, it's a bit nostalgic, and romantically, I feel that it's a loss that you're joining NATO. H- how do you feel about it on a personal level? 
Well, let me first say that um, I think it's a necessary decision. Uh, I think it's necessary because Putin is who he is. And I think Sweden lost agency uh, in this question when Finland joined uh, for several reasons. First of all, geopolitically, it would have been hopeless for Sweden to be the only country in uh, Norden to be outside. And secondly, because we have been so connected with Finland throughout history that it would have been um, very strange. Uh, that said, I I agree with you. I do feel a loss, and I'm I'm still processing this. I mean, this is I'm a historian. I usually deal with things that happened long ago, and this is happening happening suddenly, and I'm it's affecting me. And I'm trying to figure out what the loss is. Uh, and I think a lot of Swedes are actually. I mean, some don't feel any loss at all. Of course, I mean there there has been a, a pro NATO uh, you know opinion in this country, not you know by 25. 30%, I think. So definitely. And, and there were people back in the 50s who wanted to join NATO at that time, too. So, so you know, the opinion has always been there. But I, I think for a lot, of course, there is some kind of sense of loss. And I'm trying to understand if this is, is this nostalgia from my own Cold War childhood and youth? Uh, you know, the world seemed, you know, a safer place, actually, when we had the Cold War than it does today. Uh, is it some kind of, um, you know... Uh, uh, nationalistic uh, feeling of, of, you know, Sweden as the moral superpower that has, has disappeared. Um, I don't think so. And, and, and the thing is also, as a historian, I would say that, um, you know, the things that Sweden could do back in the 50s and the 60s and, and you know, have this neutrality, this sovereignty, this sort of standing outside, that was possible because of the situation at that time. Um, and, it, and it really isn't there anymore. So I don't feel that, you know, we could have maintained that. Uh, but still, as you say, it's, it's a feeling that something that, that was a bit special about Sweden has, has, has disappeared. Then on the other hand, I think this is part of a long process. I mean, you know, we have had globalization. I mean, we've sort of, I mean, the national states have lost, you know, sovereignty, not all sovereignty, definitely not. But I mean, it's been certainly restricted or, or imposed on by, by globalization. We've joined the EU. Um, so I think it's part of a process where it's been difficult for Sweden to maintain that uh, kind of high profile neutrality that we did during the 50s and the 60s. And that said, you know, it wasn't like neutrality was the greatest thing we had. I mean, before <laughs> that, no, it's pretty tainted. I mean, in, in terms of World War II, Swedish neutrality isn't like Swiss or Austrian neutrality, which is guaranteed by, you know, other other powers. I mean, it's, it's self-proclaimed and, and it sort of really was, uh, it was very pragmatic and it wasn't really about saving the world. It was just about staying out of trouble for Swedes, basically, for a long time. Yeah. Keeping your head low, <laughs> and you, which sounds a lot like Denmark, yeah. uh, but just an, another way of doing it. You know, there are some people here in Denmark arguing. I mean, Denmark is always a bit provoked by the Swedish uh, superiority. The Swed Sweden chose their own way. It's provocative for us because we chose to just follow America and follow the ECB. So, so there's a sigh of relief 
that now they are like us. They they don't claim to be better than us. But aren't you, but aren't you having a debate of, about joining the EU's uh, military um, pact? I mean, th- th- that's supposed to be sort of a, you know a change in in the in, in Denmark. So may, yeah. maybe you could be special. <clears throat> but I think at I think originally that our our special reservations about the European Union. They were on behalf of all Europeans. We did yeah. not want a European constitution. We had the chance to vote about it here. So on behalf of all Europeans, we were against it because we didn't want a federal Europe. Okay. But this time, it's not about, we're, it, we're not voting on behalf of anybody but ourselves. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so this is this is a smaller question for us here. But, but people here, are, there, I also heard some people say that Actually, Sweden is just formalizing something that was the defense reality for the country for years, that your defense has been compatible with NATO. You've been doing exercises with NATO, that it was neutrality in name only. How do you see that? Well, I mean, it's it's certainly true that, that um, I mean, you know, there are books coming out of, and, I, and it's been a question in Sweden. I mean, you know, since the... Uh, 90s basically when they were invest you know state commissions and their books written about this you know the the the, the secret dealings with NATO and the US during the whole um uh cold war basically um it certainly i think it certainly was a bit of you know hypocrisy not to tell the swedish electorate openly and honestly uh but i i'm not sure that there's anything in the international law of neutrality that says that you can't have underhand contacts with <laughs> other powers in case you're going to be attacked. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not sure it goes against any kind of neutrality law. So formally, I'm not so sure it was a breach of neutrality. And secondly, um, and this is, I'm not totally sure about this. I mean, I can certainly see you know, a lot of the people who were against, uh, you know, this sort of more higher moral stance of Sweden, criticizing the U.S., disarmament, things like that, that Palmer stood for, the engagement for the third world, anti-colonialism. You know, in Sweden, they're sort of saying, well, this was all hypocrisy. Um, but, you know, if it was, it was sort of open hypocrisy. I mean, look, I mean, everybody knew that Russia was the enemy anyway. <laughs> I mean, I did my military service in 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 the in the north of Sweden in 1976. I mean, it certainly wasn't you know American tanks we were studying the profiles of, and we certainly knew. I mean, when we had you know maneuvers, I mean, we were shooting down Red Army paratroopers, and 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 the officers told us you know clearly that the whole idea of the Swedish defense was based on that we could stick it out for a couple of months, and then NATO and the U.S. would come to our rescue. So I'm, you know, it's it's really not like, you know, people have been totally fooled by this. And um, I would say that that by doing this, um, you know, Sweden maintained a kind of maneuvering space during the Cold War, which which other countries didn't have. Uh, now you can be critical of that. I mean, certainly, um, you know, we supported some un- unsavory, you know, regimes, definitely. But if you want to understand it historically, I think you have to see it in terms of, of that special moment in history. I mean, the end of the 50s being in the 60s was really the great decolonization time. I mean, so many new countries were appearing uh, at the same time as the Cold War was raging. 
previous countries that had previously been 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 part of colonial empires, uh, especially in Africa. And I mean, just look at the number of members of the UN. I mean, I think it was like 50 or something like that in the 1950s. And I mean, now it's, now it's 200. So, I mean, the number of nations is constantly increasing. Small nations are also increasing. And in that moment, I think Swedish politicians like Ulf Palme, but even Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the UN General Secretary, who wasn't a politi- Swedish politician, but still, they saw a sort of special mission um, Uh, that the UN could have and that Sweden could have in the sense of trying to show these countries in the third world that they didn't have to choose between uh, the Soviets and the Americans, but they could find their own way. Now, I'm totally, except totally, that a a lot of them found their way in a very, uh, not a very good way. If you look at some in Mugabe and things like that, but was it such a bad idea that Sweden actually could play some kind of role in this, this decolonization process uh, and also criticize the U.S. for the Vietnam War, which was, of course, taking a risk given that, you know, the secret collaboration with the U.S., but that was sort of playing a game. I mean, trying to do t- two things at the same time, which is usually what politicians do. I mean, to be honest, I mean, the realist position is, and the total, totally cynical position is pretty horrible. The idealistic position is untenable. So you have <laughs> to find a way between those two. And I think that Sweden was trying to do that. Now, I can see it from the viewpoint of Denmark that we had pretty swollen heads. I mean, I can definitely see that people were annoyed that Sweden was taking this kind of, you know, high moral ground and, and, uh, also trying to shake off the the stigma of neutrality during during the Second World War. I mean, I mean, Sweden's neutrality was very compromised after the war, and you know what they were doing was sort of uh, what is it they say, sort of uh, re you know refurbishing <laughs> neutrality and turning it into something much more positive. Before it meant that not do anything, just you know keep away, not not try to help other countries just try to survive yourself but in the 50s they turned it into this kind of sort of this was kind of an ideal and it was possible i think because i mean we have to realize the difference between the putin regime and the soviet regime i mean the soviet regime was abhorrent it was as corrupt and as bad uh brutal as putin definitely but there were actually people out there who believed in communism there were a lot of people in the world, in the third world, who actually were attracted by the communist idea. And it may seem naive, but when Olof Palme went to Zambia and said, you should build a Swedish welfare state, <laughs> that was at least an attempt to try to say that, look, you don't have to choose between these two. And you have to realize also how, you know, how hated the old colonial powers were. I mean, the British, the French, I mean, they were really... They didn't have much legitimacy in the third world. And I think that Sweden, Olof Palme at least, felt that he could do something, you know, in terms of bringing democracy, human rights and things like that, development to, to these countries. Now, you may think that it's, it, it was sort of a hubris in a sense, but I guess that's, when you were asking about loss before, I guess that's a yes. loss that you, that somebody at least tried to do something. <laughs> Yeah, but and I always admired the post Second World War period. I think the Second World War was very difficult for all Scandinavian countries, and we were all 
compromised. And in Denmark, you actually rarely hear people complain about the Swedish position because no. we were not able to save the Jews if it hadn't been for the Swedes. No. And, and we were actually not able to have a resistance movement if it wasn't for Sweden. And this newspaper that was born out of the resistance movement for a period of time, it was edited from Sweden. So I think I never liked the criticism very much of the Scandinavian countries during the Second World War because we only had very, very poor choices. But I admired the the, the Swedish neutralities of the 50s and the 60s yeah. because it was also, like you wrote in, write in your Palmer biography, a way of defending small countries in general against great power dominance. Well, I think that's, I think really that's sort of a, a key issue here. I mean, that um, it was really sort of about the small powers. I mean, not only Poland, but I mean, Dag Hammarskjöld in the UN, I mean, he said that, you know, the UN is not for the big powers. The UN is there to defend the small countries. And I mean, he took fights with Khrushchev and with the Americans over this. Uh, and Palme in the same way uh, had this view that it was really standing up for the smaller nations. And very few people know this, but you know he was actually for Swedish a Swedish uh, uh, nuclear bomb uh, in the late fifties, and his argumentation his arguments I think are very interesting because you know the peace movement was very strong then. I mean there were a lot of social democrats who really did a big um, anti nuclear movement of the late fifties, um, and Palmer said that well look you want disarmament I want disarmament too. What's the point of starting with Sweden? With <laughs> it's the US and it's the USSR and France and Britain that should disarm. And if we get a bomb, maybe they'll realize that the nuclear bombs are spreading and that they, they will become interested in, in containment, in, in, in uh, disarmament. Now, I'm not sure that would have worked, but I think his argument was interesting because he was sort of saying that, you know, are you sure that the most moral position is to be incredibly idealistic in Sweden and not have a bomb, uh, would it rather be better if we could sort of scare them into disarmament? Now, I think he abandoned that argument later, but I'm just saying that this was kind of a, you know, a reasoning he had. And I think he had that kind of reasoning for several reasons. I mean, I think that Sweden was in a position in the, in the 50s, 60s, because of, you know, we'd come out of World War II with, with our um, industrial base unscathed, we had the great, probably the the, the greatest um, standard of living in the world. You know, the economy was booming. The Social Democrats had a firm grip over the country. There really was no, you know, real political controversies. It was a very good situation for somebody like Palma to use Sweden as a base for trying to affect world politics. If we go back a little, because we have the privilege of talking to a Swedish historian here. So, so actually, you know, Swedish neutrality goes back to what, 809 or after, yeah, and the collapse. And I think there's a very interesting story, maybe I don't understand it correctly, about Sweden collapsing as a great power yes. and, and, and investing in internal growth. Yes, and, I, I, think that, I think that's very well put. I mean, that sort of summarizes the thing because, I mean, you know, Sweden had been on the decline during the whole 18th century. I mean, slowly we've been losing ground as an imperial power. Um, and with the loss of Finland to Russia in 1809, this become, became apparent. And we did get Norway as a consolation prize, <laughs> you guys. Um, but still, the thing is that we got this king to come from Bernadotte, the, 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 the French field marshal, 
became the king of Sweden. And he became the king because the people who brought him here to Sweden thought that he would actually curry favor with Napoleon. And, you know, it would be sort of, we would be on Napoleon's side. But he turned the other way. He, he took Sweden out of the great wars, out of this whole system, and declared Swedish neutrality. And that was the start of neutrality in Sweden. And, and of course, the neutrality was about military non-alliance, of course, but it was as, exactly as you say, it was also about redefining yourself. What are we? You know, what kind of, you know, who are we? We are not uh, great because we are dominating other people and have, and have territories in Northern Germany and, and, and the Baltics, but because we can have internal growth, because we can turn, we can mobilize the citizens of this country. Of course, you know, it wasn't put like that. But you really had debates about, you know, that's when it started a lot of the, the uh, you know, creating folk school or, you know, a lot of these things. It happened in a lot of places, but it was part of, of um, redefining Sweden. And the elite in Sweden, uh, I think, abandoned the idea of, of recreating the Swedish empire, or which they couldn't have done, but they could have made a lot of problems. They could have started a lot of small conflicts over this. And, you know, I think there's a great lesson in this. I mean, I think that Putin should really learn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how you, you know, how you how you walk away from an empire and smile all the way to the bank, basically. And, and if you look at it, I mean, the absolutely worst idea in modern history is this idea of recreating lost empires. <laughs> all the shit that has come out of that. I mean, from Franco, who wanted to recreate the 16th century Spanish empire, Hitler, uh, Mussolini want to recreate the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean. I mean, Putin is walking down that same path that has failed over and over again, but has caused so much death and destruction. Yeah, and I always admired it, transforming uh, what is a decadent power, basically a decadent power, into a new understanding and a new position of strength. But I know this is a very general and difficult question, but I'm curious about it. So what were the obstacles to neutrality? Because neutrality must have been reinterpreted in a lot of different situations throughout the 19th century. Well, I mean, there were obstacles in the sense that there were people who, in the governing elite of Sweden, who had ambitions. I mean, I mean, one thing you have to understand about Sweden is that this sort of little Sweden idea, if if you understand what I mean, this yes, idea... Yes, yes. This, country which has the present borders and is a you know smaller country that is devoted to the welfare of its citizens there's always been an undercurrent of great Swedenism whatever you call it <laughs> there's always been this this you know nationalistic right that has had a longing for the days of empire and you can see this fight throughout um, in Swedish uh, sort of uh, interpretations of history I mean these people who were dreaming of the lost empire, they always emphasize um, uh, Gustavus Adolphus and the and Thirty Years' War and Charles Twelfth and Poltava, well, not Poltava perhaps, but Narva, his victories. Um, whereas the, the little Swedes would always emphasize the peasant uprisings of the 15th century instead, you know, and, and the democratic traditions and, you know, the free peasants and things like that. And, and you can even see that, I mean, in, in, in terms of the struggle for what day was 
to become our national day. I mean, we, we don't have an obvious national day like, you know, Norway or, or, or France or anything like that. So it's a bit, you know, sort of made up in the late 19th century. Um, but it went, I mean, what they did was they took, when Sweden became independent from Denmark, by the way, <laughs> that, that was the sort of Independence Day. But there were also discussions of turning Midsummer's Eve into the national day, because this would actually much more properly reflect the character of the Swedish people, the love of nature, that we're not involved in great historical politics and things like that. There has always been this struggle. But what I want to get at, I'm sorry if I'm long winded. No, no, it's very interesting. But um, what I want to get at is that there's always been this under undercurrent of wanting a bit to reclaim this role as a greater power. I mean, it came out in the Second World War when, I mean, there were Swedish politicians who really wanted to get involved with Finland and and uh, maybe were hoping that Sweden would be sort of the become the dominant power of, of Scandinavia with the help of the Germans, for instance, They're kind of playing that kind of game. And, you know, sort of ironically, I think some of, I think Olof Palme and Dag Hammarskjöld, and I think this is interesting. I mean, they really came from the aristocratic upper elite of Sweden. And Palme grew up in a, in a home, aristocratic home with strong connections to Finland against, for Finland's independence from Russia, but also an understream that, well, Finland should be independent from Russia, but maybe it should actually belong to Sweden. Now, that line of thinking went down in the, in the 40s, 30s, 40s, and the Palmer family actually became sort of politically marginalized because then so much on the right. I mean, his mother was German. She was both German, and she spent the war knitting, knitting socks for the Wehrmacht soldiers on the, on the Eastern Front. No, she didn't spend her whole war doing that, but she did it. At least. <laughs> um, and Palmer realized as a young man, I think, that that was a dead end. He saw the U.S. as the future power. He went to America to study. But, you know, I think he carried within him still this idea that Sweden should play a larger role than it had. So I think there's an interesting sort of play between these two kinds of ideas of Sweden. And I think also that is why I think maybe other, you know, Norwegians, Danes and Finns can get a bit irritated at this, you know, moral superpower business, because it has sort of an undertone of also Sweden dominating Scandinavia uh, in a way that at least I would find a little bit, you know, disturbing if I was Danish or Norwegian or Finnish. But I think there's also a way of transforming an urge that could be destructive into yes. something, into something Yes, actually progressive and, and, yes. and you, you, I agree with you. No, I mean I, I think there's a progressive side to it, definitely. I think that I, I think that um, you know there was something positive about this idea of of, of actually playing a, a larger role on the world arena. I mean, it, and and you know, I mean the thing about Palme is very unusual among among Swedish or Scandinavian politicians. I mean, he really had had a grasp of of world politics in a sense that very few politicians had. Uh, that was because he came from this background. I mean, he spoke German, French, English. I mean, he had, they had all connected all across Europe, even to the US. Uh, you know, he, he, he thought much more like a cosmopolitan than most of the Swedish politicians of his day because they, I mean, look at it, the social Democrats. I mean, they were great, but I mean, these were, these were, engaged working class people who had risen in the party and were devoted to creating a good society, to welfare, a welfare state, 
to them thinking too much about, you know, the global politics. They didn't do that. And he sort of stepped into that and actually managed to get their confidence to 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 um, do the things he did. To to what extent, because uh, as intellectuals, we always search for intellectuals who formulated some ideas. And then we we say, well, these ideas were very important. They came from these intellectuals. But sometimes, very often, I find afterwards that I go back and say, well, these ideas, they were very normal in the schools at the time and in the farm farms at the time. So we make the intellectuals the cause of, of big changes. And, and very often, it's more complicated than that. So to what extent was was neutrality and Palmer's position a part of the Social Democratic Party writ large in Sweden? Well, I don't think that, that, I mean, neutrality was certainly something that the Social Democrats had defended. I mean, if we go back to the war, I mean, I just briefly go back to the war. I sure. know you were in the 50s and the 60s. No, it's perfect. You know, I think that what happened was that, you know, in 1943, I mean, basically when, when, um, Uh, it was clear that the Allies would win, uh, and a lot of things happened in Scandinavia. I mean, you, you, I mean, the Germans took over Denmark, for instance, and in Sweden, you know, they realized that they really had to shift positions. They had to orient themselves towards the U.S. and the, and the British. But what they did was that they became, from having compromised neutrality with the Germans, they became very strict neutrals against the with the allies you know try to maintain that kind of swedish independence which they had given up more or less against the germans um i think this is this is very human i think i i think we, nobody wants to admit they're opportunists i mean everybody wants to find i've always been principled you know i've always stuck to sure. my and they did that they stuck to the principle of neutrality so that had been written into the sort of social democratic dna to defend neutrality But that was the kind of World War II neutrality. And I don't think that that, you know, the kind of ideas that Palmer was coming with, he wasn't alone, of course. I mean, there were other social democratic intellectuals. Esther Nundian, for instance, was the foreign minister. And of course, young students also who were being becoming engaged in the fight against apartheid and things like that uh, were affecting it. But I think your, I think your analysis is correct in the sense that I, I don't think Palmer was a great thinker. You know, I don't think he <laughs> No, I, no, I mean, I, he was he was a very smart person. He was very, yeah. but he wasn't, I mean, he didn't write books. He didn't create any kind of, I mean, politics was his meteor. That, that what was he did. And, and he sort of, you know, realized he, he, he sensed these ideas. He sensed these changes. And then he used what he had around him in terms of, and, and times were shifting. I mean, I mean, you know, we were turning much more towards, Uh, you know, helping countries develop, becoming more engaged in in, in anti-colonial process and and things like that. So so we use that with with Palmer. I'm sorry if I'm getting back to. I mean, I, I must seem like a Palmer nut, but I mean, you know, there is. You know, I mentioned this fact that he came from this family with strong connections to Finland and to this kind of great Sweden idea. But the second thing about Palmer is that. He was a very staunch anti-communist. I mean, he really, he really led this, the the international student movement out of the communist-dominated student organization that had been created after after the war. Uh, and he was very clear about that. 
But at the same time, as it was working with these Americans who were actually funded by the CIA, he was sent to, to Southeast Asia on this trip to look at the student organizations there. And he wrote a report back to his American um, benefactors there in, in 1952 or 53, which is incredibly interesting because that's when he sees how much these people hate colonialism. And he sees that they are even prepared to turn to communism because they really despise colonialism so much. And I think that's the basis of this analysis, that if you're going to win these you know, countries that have become independent and not let them go communist, we have to offer them an alternative. At the same time, to be honest, in Europe, he was really a cold warrior. I mean, he really didn't have any sense of giving the Soviets any truck in Europe. But he was really clear about this, that if you want to win the third world, you have to have other policies than your you know, old colonial attitudes. And I think that was sort of a basis of his thinking. So I think he was original in that sense, that he had experiences hmm. that he had put together that a lot of other people hadn't uh, at that time. But of course, it was part of, uh, I mean, you know, he was part of this whole period, I mean, of, of the 60s, when when you had a generation of you know, people who had been born during the war and come out of that and were having access to education, living standards were increasing, they were optimistic, they wanted to help the world. It really was a different time uh, in that sense. And, and I think that when we talk about NATO, I mean, I'm sorry about neutrality in Sweden today, I just feel that I'm for joining NATO, but let's, let's pay some homage to those people. Just say, that's not the world of today, but they weren't stupid idiots. No, and I, I think there are two analogies to the current situation in Palmer's position that I find very interesting. The first one is that you could choose to see this war in Ukraine as a battle between autocracy and democracy, East and West, which is, in my view, a destructive way of looking at it. Or you can choose to see it as we are defending international law. We are defending small states against the invasion of stronger states. And there's an enormous difference. And I think Palmer's position here is, is, is the clever one. And then there is another thing that I, that I was thinking when I was thinking about your book again, is that today we're kind of in the same battle of Africa. Uh, is China the most interesting model or is America the no. most in, in interesting model? And as Europeans, we must make neither the most interesting. Exactly. So I, actually, I was thinking that his that 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 these two insights that that it's about defending international order because it defends small countries against great powers, and then saying, well, actually, you have to offer Africa something better than the great powers offer them. I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, I just say that, that I mean, I think he would have defended, he would have taken this position on, on Ukraine in the same way that he did on Vietnam and Czechoslovakia um, in the 60s. And also, I think I think it's very it's very perceptive what you say about Africa. And, and the thing there that I still think we have problem with the colonial heritage, I mean, there. I mean, I was in, I was in South Africa a couple of years ago and I, I was asking about, you know, um, do you remember Palma? You know, do you, how do you see Sweden? You know, and people were saying, well, you know, that was a long time ago, not so much. And they were very much getting into business with China. And I realized that it's a horrible historical irony. At the, say, at the moment that Europe actually is becoming a sort of a decent kind of player in the world, yeah. all these 
people that suffered from European colonialism are saying, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with you and turning to China, which to me seems to be incredibly mercenary and ruthless and have no interest actually in helping other people. Another thing that I'm curious about is every time you have a, a systemic change in a country, Looking at it from the outside, where well, we see big change in public opinion in Sweden, the change a lot over the, over the. But there are also winners and losers, and 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 who are ideologically the winners here? Is this kind of also those who were always against the humanistic part of the social democratic history who are the winners now, or who are the winners and losers in this ideological battle? Well, I think you no, I think I, I think you're right. I mean, I I think there's a certain sense of revenge on the part of people who Palmer was rather, you know, acerbic, you know, against his opponent, said some pretty damaging things. And some of the social democrats have really had a very high sort of moral ground and profile, which have irritated people. So I think there's a bit of getting back at this moment, you know, sort of saying that, ha, huh, look at you, you know, now, you know, now we're um. It is also kind of an idealistic picture of, of, of NATO. I mean, in the sense that you're not talking about what you and I are discussing, that NATO is good for defending borders and maintaining national sovereignty, but that, oh, NATO is a sort of wonderful uh, community of, of, of democratic uh, nations. You know, well, I think Erdogan sort of put a light to that quite quickly. So I think that sort of deflated that, that kind of rhetoric at the moment. Um, but you know, I'm not. Uh, the thing about the social democrats is that they're incredibly pragmatic, and I sort of like them for that. They really take in what the world looks like and try to adjust according to that. I mean, they did that in the 1930s. The Swedish social democrats were very much against defense spending, anti-militaristic. But you know, in the beginning of the 30s, they took a look around in the world and said, "This is not really working. We should maybe <laughs> put some money into defense." Um, that was a big, I mean, that was a huge ideological debate. A lot of people thought that was a betrayal of the socialist ideals, uh, but they did it and they've, you know, they've done it there. You know, is there, is there, then of course, how pragmatic can you, can you be without sort of losing any kind of identity? Um, and well, that's a hard question, I think, but I don't think the anti-NATO parties are going to get so much mileage out of this because I think that for a lot of Swedes, it, they sort of you know feel like the social democrats. Well, it would have been nice if we could have managed ourselves, but all things given, you know, we have to join NATO. So I'm I, I'm not sure that it's going to they're that clear ideological winners, really. Losers, I think, the losers, I think, are, you know, the peace movement. I mean, they seem to lose every time, but that's because wars start and then people think differently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when we used to have a house in, in Southern Sweden, just a summer house where we spend a lot of time. And I was always surprised when I was talking to people in, in the little village that that they would say when, because I was, I admired the Swedish sovereignty and they would say about, neutrality that was a position that they defended no matter what political stance it was not like a left-wing thing or right-wing oh. thing and they would always say well something along the lines of it served us well oh this is the phrase today this is what everybody's saying and people are also getting annoyed at this phrase i think well i mean the thing about it i think it i think the emphasis is on us there you know yes <laughs> <laughs> 
and but that's the thing. Getting back to Palmer and your point about um, defending small countries. I mean, what he did was that he connected the dots. I mean, he made the reason that people who weren't, you know, totally idealistic could support him was because there was a connection between his idea of defending Sweden and of also helping other small nations. And you shouldn't forget that we actually had quite a large, uh, you know, defense force then that was taken down. But I mean, the basis of that neutrality policy was actually that we did have a rather significant air force. We had general compulsory mandatory military service, you know, like Finland today. I mean, we weren't, uh, you know, in a weak position. And I think people bought that idea that we need a strong defense, but we can sympathize. Our neutrality can be used for, for other purposes. And it worked. Didn't work so well when now that we don't have a defense and what's happening happening in the world. And, and I mean, I, to me, that's an issue. I mean, I still think that Sweden should have its own defense. I don't think we should join NATO just to save money on taxes. One one last question, which is very difficult to answer. I, I, I'm just curious about just your reflections on it, is that I think here in Denmark that we felt extremely secure for, for many, 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 many years. And when we hear about how people in Sweden are concerned about Russia, I know you're closer to Russia. I think we felt, I think that our being part of NATO served us well to the extent that we just totally rely on and we're protected by America. No one will will attack us. How do you think it affected the kind of folk psyche of Sweden to, to be neutral? Do you think that you, you felt more exposed? Um... I think the difference between Denmark and Sweden, I mean, I think that goes back. I mean, I don't think Denmark has ever been as obsessed by Russia as Sweden has. And and that's both in a good and a bad way. I mean, it's it's this is really one of the most difficult questions. I mean, it really is kind of a uh, really sort of cemented into the, well, whatever, not national character, but in our historical traditions, this great suspicion of Russia. And that certainly plays in today. On the other hand, I mean, um, you know, we are closer to Russia and Finland. I mean, I think I think you really have to think about Finland here and the Winter War and all that. It wasn't so much. I've never been afraid. I, I've never thought the Russians would attack Sweden. I mean, <laughs> I've never been worried about that. But I certainly have thought that aggressive Russians could drag us into something because of our, you know our closeness to the Baltic and all that. So, so I think that. It's not. I don't think people have been walk, been walking around and being scared or nervous or anything like that. I I, I don't think so. But I think maybe that uh, there's an undercurrent of, of great suspicion of Russia in Sweden that maybe isn't as great in in Denmark and Norway. Hey, like Baugain, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you too. <laughs> Det var min samtale med Henrik Berggren. Jeg vil gerne anbefale hans biografi om Olof Palme, Aristokraten som blev socialist, der udkom i 2010. Det er en fuldstændig formidabel sommerferielæser. I næste uge fortsætter vi i samme spor. Der taler jeg med den finske sikkerhedsforsker Thomas Forsberg, som har forsket i, hvad det har betydet for Finland at være Ruslands nabo og stå uden for NATO. Som har forsket i Rusland som kulturel stormagt, Rusland som militær stormagt, og som er vokset op i et Finland, 
som har bevaret deres egen uafhængighed som lille bitte nabo ved siden af Rusland. Men de har gjort det ved at gennemmilitarisere sig selv. Vi taler om Finland, vi taler om Rusland, vi taler om hele verden i det 21. århundrede i næste uge. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak til alle jer ude for at lytte med.